0: Hey Church, good morning. This is the second week of our series called Reveal, in which we're looking at revelation, what it means in Scripture. What is apocalypse? That's the Greek word for revelation. Does it mean the end of the world? Well, revelation, apocalypse, means for something to be uncovered, something that was hidden, to be revealed. So we're talking about reveal. And last week, we saw that God reveals what's most real. That his revelation is usually not about answering our questions about the future, but revealing his own self to us. His power, his his permanence, his knowledge, they're all put on display so that we can see what is most real. He's best revealed in Jesus, the perfect lens, the one by whom we check all claims that God has spoken, Whenever we hear that God has told us to do something, we check that through Jesus. Any spoken revelation, any written revelation, we check it through Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about the very last chapter, the very last words in Scripture, Revelation 22, where God's revelation reveals who His followers are, the ones who look like and look for Jesus. God's revelation reveals people that look like and look for Jesus. Jesus. Have you ever seen a couple of people that looked a lot like each other because they'd been married for decades? In 1987, there was a study done to answer the question why do people look more and more alike as they age together in a marriage? And that particular study determined that people look alike because after all of the time they spend together, laughing and crying and mirroring each other's emotions, they begin to have the same kind of uh, wrinkles on their faces, that that their bodies and their expressions become more alike over time. Now, there's other theories about why people look alike, whenever they're in relationship and whenever they're in relationship for long periods of time. Some of these have to do with theories of attraction that we look for people who look like our people. Some of them have to do with uh, what we eat together over time, how we exercise together over time. In other words, the habits of a life that shape our bodies shape both people in the relationship over time. But I love to think about this through the cartoon 101 Dalmatians, the Disney movie. There's a scene near the beginning of that movie where the dog, Pongo, is looking out the window At passing ladies and their female dogs as they walk down the street. He's trying to pick out somebody who might be a great match for Roger, his owner. Pongo's tired of the bachelor life and he's picking out a mate for both of them and then he sees all of these uh, people walk by who look just like their pets and some of them are too old and some of them are too young and some of them are too fancy and some of them are too frumpy and then he sees the one this lady dalmatian and the lady owner who happens to be just the right match for his roger and he runs out into the park chasing after them and causes the cute meet to happen and then the couples come together so this is something in our cultural imagination that people look more like the ones they love over time and actually this is very much what revelation 22 describes the children of god as being like, as they look more like Jesus, and they look for Jesus throughout their life. The book of Revelation, in a sense, is not about the end of the world, although it discusses that topic a lot. It's about who the followers of Jesus are, and what kind of person Jesus is, what kind of Lord He is. And it's about the people that look at Jesus so long and so hard that they begin to see the rest of the world as out of focus compared to Jesus who is in sharp focus. And these people begin to mirror their attitudes and their actions after Jesus. They eat what He eats. They exercise when He exercises. Their smile lines and their frown lines and their wrinkles begin to look more like Jesus. And even though we don't see Him physically the way we see our spouse or our children or even our pets, Because we look at Scripture so intently looking for Jesus, we begin to look like Him as we look for Him. Today let's take a look at Revelation 22 verses 7 through 21 to see how John paints this picture at the very end of the Bible. The final words, the closing words of Scripture. First of all, there's two beatitudes in today's reading. and We had one beatitude in last week's reading, which is a blessing. It's when Jesus says, this kind of life is a blessed life, a full, supremely happy life. Jesus gave Beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount, and at other times in the Gospels, He makes a declaration about what kind of a life is a blessed life, what is the good life. And in Revelation, there are seven of these. We saw the first one last week. We're seeing number 6 and number 7 today. So Jesus says this in Revelation 22, 7. Look, I am coming soon. One of three times that he promises that he is coming in today's reading, that he will return. He hasn't forgotten. He's not absent-minded. He's not delayed. He's coming soon. And we wrestle with what soon means, because for these folks in the first century, it might seem like he didn't come soon. For those waiting down through the centuries until the 21st century, it may seem like he hasn't come soon. For those of us waiting today, longing for His coming, it may seem like He's not coming soon. But in Jesus' reality, in His eternal, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come reality, He's coming very soon. Our waiting for Him is not really that long. And so He calls us to endurance and faithfulness. He says, I'm coming soon. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll blessed is the one who keeps the words. What does it mean to keep the words? Well, it means to obey them. But even more than obeying them, it means to treasure them, to guard them, to hold on to them, to cherish them, to store them away and bring them out and look at them. You know, I think about a parent who has sent their child off to college and who is waiting for them to come home and visit. The kid might send a note through the mail, or these days just a text message to say, Hey, Mom, coming home, Uh, get my room ready, can I do laundry, are you going to cook anything? Whatever they might ask for. And the mom, so excited that her child is coming home, looks at those words, cherishes those words, reads those words. Maybe the mom and dad comment to each other multiple times the week ahead. Now. They said that they're coming at seven, right, because they want to get everything ready. Think about a date with a guy coming to pick the girl up, seven o'clock sharp, and she checks her message to make sure that she's read it right. He checks his message to make sure she really did say yes. They treasure the words. They look at the words. They think about the words. They consider the promise in the words, and they consider their role in the fulfillment of that promise, the realization of that relationship. The mom and the dad begin to make preparations in earnest. The child, well, maybe they make some preparations, but they're really looking forward to mom and dad having things ready. The two people on the date, they're getting themselves ready. They take a look in the mirror and see how things are going. Uh, We've all done that, haven't we? Taken a look in the mirror and said, it's it's not going great right now, got to work on that got to get a haircut, got to wash up, got to try to look our best for the people that we care about. And so cherishing these words, keeping these words, is obedience. But it's always more than mere obedience. It's obedience with heart, with expectation, with promise, with hope. And so it's a funny thing that happens right after Jesus says that. John The disciple of Jesus, the dearly beloved, now in his old age, exiled on the island of Patmos, caught up in the Spirit, seeing this revelation on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. He he gets these words from Jesus, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy, and then John almost immediately makes a major mistake. And this is John the disciple, (laughs) so if he can make these mistakes, you know that you and I will. He says, I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. We go, what? You're looking for your loved one, and then your focus drifts over here? Like, you're looking for Jesus, but your focus drifts to this angel? You know, this would be like the mom and the dad in my scenario, getting distracted by the fact that the neighbor lady is coming over to drop something off, and they forget that their child is coming. Or this would be like the two people getting ready to go on the date, getting a call from a friend and forgetting that it's time to go on the date. It's it's almost inconceivable that somebody who is longing and expecting for a moment of reunion would forget or would turn their attention towards someone else. And yet, it's in our hearts. All of us do this very often. We want to think about Jesus, but we start thinking about selfish things. We get distracted by the ones who mediate Jesus to us instead of fixing our eyes on Him alone. You know, this is easy, easy to do in, in our work, in our church life, our worship life. It's easy to do just in our world with the cares that are going on in our towns or in our country. It's easy to do at every, every age and every stage. This is what happened to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God called them out of Egypt. He took Moses on the mountain for 40 days. The people were to wait expectantly, but they can't wait. They immediately get distracted. They make themselves an idol, a golden baby cow of all things, and say, this is Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. They worship the created thing instead of the creator because it's hard to wait. And John nearly does the same thing here. The angel says to John in verse nine, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll, worship God. And so John reminds us that treasuring these words, keeping these words is not easy even for an apostle. Even for an apostle who's caught up in the Holy Spirit on Sunday, worshiping God takes attention, takes effort It takes reminders from our fellow messengers that we're not to get caught up in the things that are made by God, but to focus on him alone. Our relationship with him is so easily distracted. So the angel tells John in verse 10, don't seal up the words of this prophecy. Now, many ancient uh, revelations that were written down by Jewish authors say, seal up the words of this prophecy. For instance, Daniel was told to seal up the words of prophecy that were given to him. and We have other examples outside of the Bible. The usual way of an apocalypse, a revelation, is to seal up the words. So a revelation has been given, but not to talk about it. Now John is told by the angel, do not seal up these words. They are open and available. They're to be used, they're to be treasured, they're to be kept. The time is near. There's not a lot of time. So treasure these words. Open them up. And then the angel says to John, Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. The one who does right continue to be right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. In other words, these words are revealing who we are as we look at them. As we read them, as we treasure them, as we keep them, it reveals who we are. When the mom and the dad go back and they read the text message again, when the girl and the guy on the date go back and read their messages again, and they're shaping themselves, getting themselves ready for that time of reunion, it's revealing what they want. When we get distracted so easily by other things than our purpose with Jesus, it reveals that we still have sinful impulses inside of us, that there are things that we want that are contrary to each other. We have conflicting desires, And yet, this is a reminder, a warning from the angel to say, Worship God. Keep the words unsealed. Keep them open. Keep them in front of you. Keep looking for the thing that you want and need most for Jesus. Don't get distracted. This is going to reveal who you are. So, who are you and what do you want? Now, Jesus speaks again, but this time, instead of saying, uh, Blessed is the one who keeps the words, He's going to focus on a different metaphor for being an obedient servant of God. Jesus says in verse 12, Look, I'm coming soon. This is now the second time of three times that He has said it. My reward is with me. I'll give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last, the beginning and the end. This is very much like what we read last week in chapter 1. The one who is and was and is to come. That Jesus, in His eternal permanence, the real thing, is going to reveal to us what matters most. And so verse 14, he gives the second beatitude. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Wash their robes. Sounds like pretty religious language, doesn't it? After all, throughout the Bible, robes are a metaphor for a person's life. Is it a good life, a clean life with white robes? Or is it a polluted life? filled with different kinds of lusts and griefs and angers, resentments, bitterness, and aggression. So the robes stand in for our moral stance in front of God. And yet there's more than that going on here. Washing of the robes is something we can't even do ourselves. Washing our robes is something that only Jesus can do, that He cleanses us. So this isn't to say that our destiny determined by how we've performed and go against things that are said in the rest of the New Testament. No, this is still based on the grace of Jesus, the only launderer for our souls. And yet, the blessing is for those who wash their robes, because this is again about preparation. Imagine the mom and the dad in the scenario of the college student coming home. What do they do to their house? Well, they go about and get everything ready. If you've ever gone home to grandma's house or mom's house and you were fortunate enough to have a mom or a grandmother who was able to care for these kind of things, you probably have some warm or fond memories of somebody who was prepared when you got there. Of towels folded, maybe still warm from the dryer, and beds made. Extra linens laid out, folded, ready to go. Something baking in the oven. This is the expectant mom. The expectant grandmother who can't wait for her people to come home. And so she gets ready. She puts everything in order. This is the dad who lays out everything that's needed for the activity. They're going to go to the game together. They're going to go to the woods together. So he sets out the chairs. He sets out the ball gloves. He brings out the equipment and cleans it up. He gets out the camping box. He makes sure the old lantern is ready to go. He checks the tent, wipes it down, everything's ready. This is expectant preparation. And it doesn't mean that we're saved by our performance, but it does mean that we look more like Jesus as we look at Him and as we look for Him, that we begin to prepare ourselves to be ready for His arrival. This again is like the two people on the date getting themselves ready so they can show their best self to the person that they admire. Now, Jesus says in verse 15 that there is another choice. That what might be revealed about us is that we are not preparing for Him, but we're preparing only for ourselves. That we have selfish inclinations in mind. He says that the blessed who wash their robes go into the tree of life through the gates of the city, but outside are the dogs. What does He mean by dogs? It's uncertain. But it seems like Jesus is saying there is a choice you can make that causes you to look less like a human, like Jesus in His fullness, and more like an animal. There are choices that we can live by, a kind of preparation that we make that causes us to be subhuman, less of the image of God. He says outside are the dogs, those who practice the magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood." This is a hard word from Jesus, but these are the same kind of things that were spoken at Sinai by God to Moses, that there are ways of honoring God and His name and His Sabbath, and ways of honoring people by not committing adultery, or by not lying, by not lusting after what other people have or other people's bodies, by keeping ourselves pure, for God and for each other, that there are choices in life that make us look more like Jesus or more like base animals. Now, Jesus Jesus uses these hard words in order to give us a choice, an opportunity, again, to treasure His words and to look at His words and to ask, what am I looking like? You might think about events of the last couple of days in your own life, and spend time thinking about Jesus and your own life. Who am I looking more like? Who are my influencers? What are they speaking into my life that I'm molding myself after? What am I becoming? And if there's conviction, or if there is guilt, or if there is even shame, allow it to bring you closer to Jesus and not drive you further away. You're still loved this is not the final word about who you are. It is an opportunity now to look at Jesus again and long for His coming and to prepare for Him. Do the laundry, wash the robes, expect that Jesus is coming. Let's get ourselves ready, church. I, Jesus, verse 16, sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Let's get ourselves ready, church. This isn't just about an individual faith and a God who just has a message for you alone. Revelation is almost never about you alone or me alone. It's about us together. The bride of Christ united, the body of Christ under His headship, the church of Christ, together looking for Him and longing for Him, doing the laundry together. This is about His beloved church. Jesus says that he is both the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. These are all pretty biblically grounded Jewish ways of talking about his permanence, his glory, that we can trust him, that he's before David, he's the one who created David, that he's after David, in his human life he came from David's lineage, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star. is is all ways of saying there's no one that shines brighter in the sky than Jesus. We look at Him. We long for His coming. And so, the Spirit and the Bride, in verse 17, say, Come. They cry out, Come. Jesus has said twice now, I'm coming soon. And the Spirit causes the church, the Bride, to long for His coming, to look forward to it. And I think sometimes maybe we don't look forward to the coming of Jesus because our life is comfortable or because we're uncertain about what eternity means and what it will be like and if it will be enjoyable. So remember this, the God who is creating the age to come is the God who created the world you live in unbroken. The God who is creating what is next created this when it was perfect, when it hadn't fallen into sin and decay. Imagine the world that we live in, with all of the thrill of life, all of the expectation of the future, all of the relationships that we share, all of the beauty, all of the songs, all of the delicious foods. Imagine those made anew. The palingenesia is the word Jesus uses in the Gospels, the the creation of all things anew, the restoration of all things, the regenesis of all things. This is the way the Bible talks about the future. And the Spirit and the Bride, when they recognize the good Creator is making things new again, say, come on, let's go there. Let's have Him return. We're ready for that. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. And then it says the most curious things in verse 17. It says, the Spirit and the Bride are longing for Him. They're looking for Him and longing for Him, and they say, come. But let the one who hears say, come. So what does it look like? to evangelize, in the spirit reality of Revelation 22. What does it look like to evangelize in this uh, Jesus is our mirror, we're looking at Him and longing for Him reality? It's that we call out for Him. We long for His coming, and people that see that longing, that hear that longing, they're invited to join the song, to join the chorus, and also say, come, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And those who are thirsty are invited to come and to drink freely of the gift of life. They're invited to come and take the free gift of the water of life. And so this is both about longing and about worship and about witness and about evangelism. Evangelism never starts with us or with our big ideas. The Holy Spirit is the first one speaking. The bride speaks with Him. Come. Jesus come in fact it's almost as if we're not even telling people to come we're telling Jesus to come and others see it and they also choose to come but while we're crying out for him and longing for him the Spirit is leading the way it's always a joint effort to share this news with others it's always the Spirit who is leading the way in evangelism you are never alone in fact your eyes are just on Jesus And other people follow your gaze to him, and they say, that is what real life looks like. You've revealed what real life looks like because I've seen Jesus. And so John warns everyone in verse 18 to take this book seriously, not to add to it, not to take from it. These words are about the revelation itself, about this document. But there's similar words elsewhere in Scripture to remind us that when God speaks, it's not our duty to add to it or to, or to give people permission to dismiss it, but to look at it and treasure it, obey it, keep it unsealed, and keep looking at it. Keep reading it. Keep hearing it. There's a stiff, strong warning here that if anyone adds things to this book, God will add to that person the plagues described in it. And if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that's a pretty terrifying idea. This book describes very diverse endings for people. Destruction, loss, and suffering for those who serve themselves throughout life and begin to look more like their beloved, the dragon. But joy, restoration, peace, and hope for those who begin to look more like their beloved, the lamb who was slain, but is alive, the morning star, the root and the offspring of David. So, the one who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, the one who's given this revelation, says one final time, the third time, yes, I'm coming soon. And the people of God say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. For the third time, they answer him. The spirit and the bride say, come. That's the first time. The one who hears, he says, come. Or she says, come. And now, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He declares three times he's coming. We declare three times that we want him to. This is what it means to look for him, to look like him. This is what God is revealing in us. Again, it's not the answers to all of our questions about the future. It's not our answers to when the end will come or... uh, who the world government antichrist might be, or any of the other things we've been taught about Revelation too many times. This is about who Jesus is, the most real and perfect lens through whom we see the Father. And it's about who we are as we are revealed to be like Him, to be His doppelgangers, to be little Christs, to be formed in His image anew as we were formed in His image at the beginning. Let's pray Lord Jesus, come quickly into our hearts, into our church, into our neighborhood, into our world, and into this universe to bring about the new age that you've planned to come. And the church together says, Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.